my first time dying, so I'm learning as I go along. And dying while legislating, it's, uh, you know, I take it up as a, as a challenge. I, I was honored to be selected to be the minority leader. I told my colleagues that about my condition, and I'm not planning on leaving soon, but I'm also realistically enough, I believe in science, I know what stage four prostate cancer is, and I know that my time is limited. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. When I think of people I admire, I think of Rennie Cushing. He's the father of three daughters, a social justice activist, and a poetry lover. He's dedicated his life to making the world a better place. He's the minority leader of the Democrats in the New Hampshire House of Representatives. After personal tragedy, he led the effort to abolish the state's death penalty. He also co-founded the Clamshell Alliance, an anti-nuclear organization that opposed the construction of the Seabrook Station nuclear power plant, five miles from his home. Rennie, your Twitter bio says you're a fading romantic and an aging revolutionary. What's the most romantic gesture you've made? I think the most uh, romantic experience I ever had was uh, the birth of my three daughters. And I can't think of anything more romantic than bringing new life into the world. And I'm grateful for that. I get up every morning and count my lucky stars for it. When you were a teenager, your cousin returned from the Vietnam War with stumps instead of legs. And I read that his injury changed your view of war, and you then began a push to lower the voting age from 21 to 18. You were just 15 when you testified on that issue at the state capitol in New Hampshire. A few years later, the 26th Amendment passed. By then you were 20, and you got to vote for the first time. So for those who are apathetic about voting, could you help us understand why voting is so important? Well, you know, first of all, to go back over a half century now, um, when my cousin Ralphie came back from Vietnam with stumps instead of legs, it really did change everything about the assumption that I had about the kind of life I was going to lead in the society I was going to. And I'm part of the generation that's forever marked by war, by the war in Vietnam in particular. And it was a different war than my father's war. My father was a World War II vet. So that had a different, um, it just it was very, it was different to understand. And I, somebody, I came to conclude that the war in Vietnam was a mistake, and then I began working to end it in my own little way. My first political experience was knocking on doors for Eugene McCarthy, who was an insurgent candidate who ran against the war. Um, and I became involved in that campaign. Um, and I also became involved in student politics, for lack of a better word. I ended up getting kicked out of school because I challenged the dress code and took the school board to court and kind of my seminal legal entanglements. Um, and uh, at the time, I also realized that when the, you know, the elections took place and we didn't have a stake, he wasn't able to cast a vote, that it didn't seem fair. It was susceptible to the argument that if you're old enough to go and vote and die, you ought to be old enough to have a say in whether or not boys would be prosecuted. So I did with a number of other um, people, young people in the state, um, launched a 
an effort to lower the voting age in the state of New Hampshire. So initially, we were unsuccessful. I did testify the first time in Reps Hall uh, when I was 15, and I was uh, I was certain that we were going to prevail because the argument seemed so manifestly just. Uh, I was surprised at the end when they voted against it, uh, but again, the, that effort continued. And uh, when I was 20, I did get to vote in the uh, election for the first time and felt somewhat vindicated. Across the country, there are a number of efforts underway to try to suppress the vote. As for the practice of voting itself, how do you impress upon them just how important it is to vote? I mean, the franchise, the right to vote, it's the most fundamental right of all. It's the one that protects everything else. And I do get frustrated when people don't take the time to vote, having been involved in the efforts to expand the franchise. I get, um, you know, I'm, I'm filled with optimism for youth and their ability to be agents of change and, and transformation in our society. But, um, you know, sometimes it's just, uh, it gets frustrating. Like a better word. I don't think it's enough for us to vote or to pay taxes. As a responsible citizen in a democracy, I think we also need to engage in the process on some level, mm-hmm. as you've done your entire life. So as an insider like yourself, what are the most effective ways for an outsider like me to do that? Well, it's interesting to be called an insider because I still consider myself an insurrectionist in some ways, and I say that as someone who adheres to principles of nonviolence. Um, but I, I think that it's important. Social change comes from, uh, from the bottom up. That's how I believe it takes place. And so I think people outside of the, 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 the government have an important role in pressing for government to make changes in policy. And, I always try to work that I do. I always try to work both with people inside the state house dome um, and also outside of the state house to try to impact public policy. What does that mean exactly for the citizen? What works? The phone calls, the emails, obviously the grassroots organizing works, but that's a lot of effort. Well, it all, it, everything works. To a certain it extent. all does work. Well, that's important. I think, you know, I, I will talk about the specifics of New Hampshire is kind of unique. It's the House of Representatives is the largest legislative body outside of Congress in the United States. So we have 400 people, and it's pretty easy to get access to your state representative. I mean, I, people can knock on my door all the time. I go to Hannaford's and go shopping and hear stuff. I go to the high school to watch a soccer game, and I hear stuff from people. Um, if people have a clear message and they know what they want to do, it's important to press that upon their elected representatives. And you can do that by, obviously, conversations, one-on-one conversations, the most important and the most effective, but there are other ways to reach people. You know, and that includes, I'm, I'm somewhat of a late adapter to emerging technologies, um, but, you know, I think phone calls work. I think Mail, sometimes handwritten notes are somewhat of a rarity these days. A personal handwritten note, you can't help but want to read that as opposed to an auto-generated. Right, um, it stands out a little bit more. It stands out a whole lot, right. During a time of divisive politics and COVID, you're serving as the minority leader for the Democratic representatives in the New Hampshire House. How has that event informed your leadership, and what lessons do you hope to impart to your caucus? 
Well, it was kind of a, it's a great honor to be the person who speaks for the 186 Democrats in the New Hampshire House. It's the largest minority in the history of the state of New Hampshire within the House, and it's one of the largest minority caucuses in the country. Um, the fact that we're operating in the midst of a pandemic, uh, you know, matters in the legislature just as it matters in all of our aspects of life. Uh, unfortunately, I've tried to be guided by principles of I believe in science. I've, I know that COVID is real. My mother died from COVID. Uh, uh, there is a small element. I'm that, sorry. Small element in the in the House of Representatives that denies that COVID exists, that doesn't believe in masks, that doesn't believe in vaccinations it doesn't really believe in public health or public safety and so that's been a challenge um was very disappointed that the speaker of the house for instance refused to allow for a process where people could participate remotely in house sessions uh, and ended up bringing the speaker of the house to federal court under the americans with disabilities act to try to ensure that people who are vulnerable people who have um Sit, you know, have conditions that uh, render them particularly vulnerable during the pandemic, that their state would make a reasonable accommodation of allowing them to participate remotely. We've been, had the past you know year and a half, there have been untold sacrifices that everyone in our society has had to make, uh, foregone graduations and schools and celebrations and, you know, careers that have been put on hold. And it seemed that we need to have uh, regain that sense of community, that sense of kind of common good. And, you know, part of that is recognizing that we're all vulnerable to this disease that knows no limitations, really. That's a, that virus will attack anybody. It's pretty indiscriminate. And we have a responsibility to ourselves, a responsibility to each other to recognize that and to take steps to try to protect ourselves and protect our, our fellow citizens of this earth. I think it's that sense of community that we're really lacking in this time and age. Right. You were 16. You left home with $40 in your pocket and you hitchhiked, eventually landing a series of jobs around the country, picking produce in Florida and California, working on the back of a trash truck in Georgia. And those jobs mirror some of the jobs that other social justice activists like yourself have done over the years. So what did those early jobs teach you? Well, it's funny. I was 16. My mother took me up to, she gave me a ride up to the road, up to the toll toll booth up in Hampton. And I had $40 in my pocket and a sign that said, ain't ride anywhere, please. Um, and then as an, and as an adult, I realized it was kind of a traumatic thing to do to a parent. But, um, you know, from that, I, I kind of began what I, I still think of as a career of trying to, you know, hitchhike around the world. To, to learn. I'm someone who I grew up in this, you know, this is the house where I grew up in, this is the town that I grew up in, and I know I was raised in a very loving, secure family as the oldest of seven kids and knew all my blessings were right there and um, also was somewhat of an autodidact and knew that there was just things that I wasn't going to learn in Hampton and had to go find someplace else. So I, I did that and I managed to make my way to a number of different places um, and I think it's being an autodidact, I recognize that everyone is a teacher, just like everyone is the right student. And so in the process of, you know, traveling and working, I learned a lot from the people who, uh, with whom I interacted and I lived on a day-to-day -day basis. And that helped inform some of my 
thoughts about social justice, about visions of kind of a common, you know, common future that we want to have in a world where I just kind of took to heart the admonition of Dr. King that we work to every day to try to help bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice. You also traveled outside the U.S. What have other cultures taught you? Uh, they taught me a lot about American exceptions. I tell people I learned how to pick. I learned how to speak Spanish with my hands. I hitchhiked uh, in Mexico down to Southern Nayarit and got uh, ride in the back of a pickup truck to where the road dead ended, and there was nobody there that could speak Spanish, and I could speak English, and I couldn't speak Spanish. So I got a job picking tobacco for a dollar a day, but I did learn in the process um, how to speak Spanish. Um, I was to you to coin a phrase. I think of myself. I'm a gringo mojado, which is this, you know, it's someone who's a gringo who is a gringo wetback. And I would kiddingly tell people in the, the camp campesinos I'd work with, is picking tobacco, that I was just going to be the first of these Americans who were going to come down here and take these good farm worker jobs away from Mexicans, and they couldn't <laughs> quite. Sometimes my humor, I managed to get it through eventually, but I learned a whole lot about. Uh, I learned a lot about poverty. I learned a lot about injustice traveling in Latin America. Um, and it helped make me, on the one hand, realize the common humanity that everyone enjoys. Uh, and also kind of made me realize uh, both the blessings of growing up where I did and the challenges. And eventually I kind of made a decision. I, I traveled, spent a few years traveling and learning, and I decided I'd come back to New Hampshire and make the revolution or try to live a life that honored justice and that's what I've been doing for a few decades now. Then in the summer of 69, you went to Woodstock. 69 is when I yeah, went to Woodstock. What was your experience there? What bands did you like? Oh, geez, I liked all the bands. My experience, actually, it was the first time I was ever exposed to the notion of female liberation. There was this little area that I gravitated to where it was all the, the, the community activists would provide literature and I was the time of turmoil the you know Vietnam War was going on the struggle against American apartheid was still very much resonating throughout the country and there's a lot of changes that fermenting and so it was the first place that I ever came across any literature that kind of in my face challenged some of what we recognize now as male privilege and things like that um, that and you know I enjoyed the music I enjoyed the bands on a personal level, any stories? Just, you know, it was kind of funny to go from Woodstock to come back to cut my hair and go to football practice. So there was an interesting dichotomy. I was late for football practice because I was stuck at Woodstock, but I still got to do that. It was interesting being a you know child of the Woodstock Nation and a Winnicott Warrior football player. A Winnicott Warrior and a child of Woodstock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like it, that. It amused my football coach to no end, I think. But, and made him a little jealous that he wasn't at the show. <laughs> no, I think it made him a little nervous about what I might be oh. up to. Because <laughs> he knew that's I where was, the hippies went. I was a good lineman. <laughs> so now we're into the early 70s. President Nixon called for the construction of a thousand nuclear plants by the year 2000. Big crow in the background. <laughs> mm -hmm. 1976, you were one of the co-founders of the anti-nuclear organization Clamshell Alliance. People had voted against the construction of a nuclear power plant here in New Hampshire, and your aim was to defend the will of the people. 
Right. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, again, I was in high school and plans to construct the world's largest atomic plant on our state's precious 18 miles of seacoast were announced. It was kind of, uh, you know, it was an exercise in trying to justify construction of an atomic plant in a place where the owners of the plant really never intended to do, but it was also kind of taught you a little bit about environmental justice, that it was situated in the most economically depressed community on the seacoast. And yeah, I was opposed to it. I testified before the state site evaluation committee in 1972 and 1974 tried to uh you know express my opposition and like many others we came to realize that the whole system was rigged that every time people prevailed on the law they changed the rules and after the town of seabrook voted in opposition to having an atomic power plant built in their town in march of 1976 um and the federal government and the state went forward in forcing the construction of that plant there. I joined with a number of other peoples and started the Clamshell Alliance. Um, it was a time also that there was opposition to the construction of uh, atomic plants were taking place throughout the, the region in particular. And so we joined together and realized that if if they were going to license a plant at Seabrook, that it was just a charade to even pretend that the regulatory process had any integrity. So um, began a you know, this series of, um, you know, resistance to that project that manifests itself in many ways. There was certainly civil resistance, civil disobedience was part of it. Uh, 45 years ago this month was the first arrest at Seabrook that I was part of with the Clamshell Alliance. And in the spring of 1977, there were 1,414 people who were arrested in the largest mass arrest in the history of the state. And at the Seabrook site, and then held for a couple of weeks in five National Guard armories and in a way that uh, catapulted the uh, resistance to the atomic plants you know, throughout the country. Uh, the struggle here continued in Seabrook. One plant you know, didn't go down, one plant was built. And part of the pirate victory that the nuclear industry um, gained is that uh, they were after the arrested Seabrook, there was never another atomic plant in this country that was um, announced that was built. Just five miles away from here, one was built. Right. But your campaign served as a template for other broad political movements. Why do you think you were so successful? I, in, in, in a way, I think it was a political moment that there was a confluence of things that it was not about, it was about power, but it wasn't about nuclear power. It was about uh, economic power. It was about the uh, power of democracy. It was about home rule. The, the leadership, the, the forces that emerged were, it wasn't just about defending, um, it was about defending home rule. It was about defending our democracy in, in town meetings. It was about defending the interest of people whose land was taken from them by this power company that had the right of eminent domain granted to it. And so people who lived in trailers and lived in an area that, uh, you know, that, that where they, they were targeted to build the atomic plant, they lost their homes. It was concerned by people uh, who made their living, you know, fishing and clamming. Uh, in, in a way, the opposition forced a number of concessions. The original plan for Seabrook was just to have an open boiling cauldron in Hampton Seabrook Harbor, and eventually they were forced to 
build a tunnel a mile and a half off coast, which was... This sounds no incredible. Sense. Yeah, it made no, no sense integrity. So the project that they end up building had very little uh, to do with the project that they had originally proposed, but that's what we're living with these days. On the subject of energy, Bill Gates is quite bullish on the use of nuclear power. Another bill, Bill McKibben, the founder of the climate change campaign 350.org, mm-hmm. believes new nuclear power will play a fairly small role in the future because the price of solar, wind, and batteries continues to drop, yet the price of nuclear power keeps rising. He also says we've been fooled because we've grown up in a period of dramatic climate stability. For 10,000 years, we've been able to exist as if the natural world was a backdrop, and those days are over, and I think everyone can see that in real time today. What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts is that the whole nuclear boondoggle from the outset has proven to be a total farce. I mean, interestingly, what was once promoted as nuclear power would give us uh, energy that would be too cheap to meter. Uh, Now it became uh, power that was too expensive to consume. Um, I think that there's people have never addressed the problems associated with nuclear waste. And what we have now are a hundred different nuclear waste repositories that are at the site of every one of the operating nuclear plants in the world. And the problem with nuclear waste is that it's uh, nuclear power in general is a very unforgiving technology and the byproduct has one uh, really horrible use and that's for atomic bombs. I, I think that there may have been some people who in the aftermath of the Manhattan Project hope to be able to have some good come out of the horror that was unleashed by the splitting of the atom. But I think that that's proven to be kind of a, a fool's errand. Uh, we're better off just to leave uranium in the ground and to stop producing more of it. And the nuclear power is not the answer to warming. It's been, If anything, it diverts our resources away from meeting, you know, solar and clean and green. You know, you, right now, the ratepayers in many states are being held hostage and forced to pay to keep atomic power plant generating electricity. The funds that have been diverted, it's such a squandering of resources that you should take the money that had been spent in investment in nuclear technology and you just spent a small portion of that into solar and wind and, and renewables. We'd have energy independence and we'd be a long way towards solving our climate crisis. We're sitting in the backyard of the home where you and your wife now live. Your parents raised seven kids in that home. In 1988, in that home, your father, a retired teacher, was watching a Celtics game when he answered a knock at the front door. An off-duty police officer was on the other side of that door. He shot and killed your father, apparently because of a grudge against your family. Later, in 2011, your brother-in-law was murdered in Tennessee. Your Catholic faith influenced your opposition to the death penalty before your father's murder, and you didn't change your position after the murder. Thanks in large part to your activism over the course of two decades, capital punishment died here in New Hampshire in 2019. You've said that you actually have more in common with family members of murder victims who support the death penalty than those who agree with you. Could you explain that? 
Well, nothing prepares you to be the survivor of a homicide victim. You know, we're conditioned to expect that when death comes, it'll be when we're 108 in our sleep, or maybe we'll have cancer and it'll take us, or maybe a tree will fall upon us. But nothing really prepares us to have our life or a loved one's life taken at the hands of another human being. So it puts us in very dark places. And when you do have somebody murdered, it's, you know, it impacts obviously the person who's in the ground who's taken, but it also impacts the survivors left behind and from the moment of that um you know from the moment of the horror when, when a homicide takes place for a victim survivor a lot of what they're challenged to do when your whole life and your sense of order has been tossed up in the air because no one could imagine anybody else killing somebody uh it's about trying to reclaim control over your life so as part of the journey that I make that all of us who have had family members murdered make is trying to reclaim power and reclaim control over, over your life so that you know that um, just because your assumptions about life and death have been shattered, it doesn't mean that everything else in your life you want to. So the journey is wanting to understand what happened to give it some kind of perspective and context. So when I say that I have mowing common with people who've buried a family member because of homicide i do there's that's just the overwhelming desire you know there's not a desire to much as we might like to we'd like we, to change the past we can't do it so we're part of the process is trying to figure out how to make some decisions about going forward um and i, I had never really thought about the death penalty after my father was murdered because i was just trying to figure out what to do with the like the empty chair at the kitchen table or trying to do with a hole in my heart um but my something happened a few days after my father's killers were was arrested when i went into a corner grocery store down the end of the street um and i saw a family friend there who said hey Rennie, I, I hope they fry the bastard I hope they fry the guy so you and your mother and your family can get some peace and I didn't know how to respond because, um, you know, this is a guy who'd known me my whole life and knew before my dad was murdered that I supposed, opposed the death penalty. But I also realized he presumed that, because uh, my dad was murdered, that I would change my position on capital punishment. So I couldn't respond. I appreciated his, you know, his, his offering up an execution solution to my pain was done out of a, you know, out of a good intent. But as I reflected on it, I realized that if I did that, if I changed my position on capital punishment because my father was murdered, well, that would really only kind of compound the horror because not only would my father be taken from me, but also so would my values. And it was kind of an aha moment that you have in the journey you make after homicide. And I realized on some level that there's this paradigm out there that presumed that everybody who had somebody murdered wants to see a ritual killing by a public employee of the one responsible for taking your loved one's life. And if you don't feel that way, you must be a psycho or saint or, you know, maybe this, you really didn't like your love your, your family member, or maybe your family member did something wrong to deserve it. There's all kinds of reasons, but the reality is just like everybody else kind of muddled through it and came to the conclusion that, you know, filling another empty coffin wasn't going to bring my father back. It was just going to kind of widen that circle of pain. And also, I realized that people presumed I was going to change my position. It almost made, imposed an obligation upon me to make sure that people realized that I, I really 
didn't support capital punishment. If anything, I thought it would just make things, just add to the problems that we would. And so I kind of began begrudgingly speaking on opposition to the death penalty. You want to see more assistance for victims. Yeah, absolutely. That's oh, yeah. the path forward. Well, that's one of the paths forward. I mean, I, believe me, you know, I, I want to hold, I, I hold offenders accountable. I mean, I'm not a forgiver. I want people to who are who do harm to others to be held completely accountable for their their crimes. I mean, you can do that without killing them. Um, but I also realize that our 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 criminal justice system is a lot about winning, losing, and punishing. It's not that much about truth telling and healing. And I, mean, I could speak for a couple hours now about some of the shortcomings in our criminal justice system. Yeah, I absolutely became. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I, one of the things I did to give meaning to the loss is I became involved in victims' rights and being an advocate for victims and, you know, was responsible for, you know, victim, Crime Victims Bill of Rights, for the Victims Assistance Program in the state, for supporting victims' advocacy programs, and I've done that. Um, you know, at some point I, I found myself in, the legislature in 1997, uh, when there was a series of bad homicides that took place in New Hampshire and New England, there was a you know a couple of state troopers were killed, a judge, a newspaper publisher, a local law enforcement officer, you know, an eight-year-old girl. And in Massachusetts, there was an eight-year-old boy, Jeffrey Curley, who's was lured by pedophiles and homicide and killed and brought to Manchester. And there was a hysteria, like somehow these high profile murders, it seemed like we have to do something. And the, the easy answer that of course wasn't an answer was, well, we have to expand the death penalty. And I found myself in a situation of being a survivor of homicide and having to having the issue that death penalty forced right on me. I mean, I didn't, I wanted to be, let me tell you, I wanted to be more than just a survivor homicide victim, but that was the, the situation I found myself in and decided that um, rather than have a discussion be about whether or not we were going to keep the death penalty or expand it, that we needed to really have a conversation about doing away with the death penalty. And so I, in 1998, sponsored a measure that would have uh, repealed the death penalty and while that didn't pass, there were more votes for repeal than, than there were to uh, expand it. And that kind of launched me, I guess for lack of a better word, into a world of um, the death penalty abolition movement and particularly working with other survivors, other victims, family members to speak out in opposition to capital punishment. Which finally, I guess for over the next, you know, 21 years or so ended up when uh, in June of 1919 the legislature overrode Governor Sununa's veto of death penalty repeal and New Hampshire decided that it could live without capital punishment. You played the long game and you finally won. I was with part of a you know, group of people who played played the long game but um, this, you know, it's a moment in time. I think it, I, I realize in some ways that was um, had the good fortune to complete the work that had been started in 1834 by Governor William Badger, and it's always good after 185 years to bring something to a close. You're part of history. Yeah, part of history. It's part of history. Your fingerprints are all over other social, economic, and environmental justice issues, legalization of cannabis, mm -hmm. water protections, expansion of civil rights for women, minorities, for people with disabilities or mental illness. 
And when I think of your life's work, I think of a man who has dedicated his life to reducing the suffering of humanity. How do you see yourself? I just see myself as kind of a lucky kid. I'm the luckiest kid I know. I'm a Hampton boy. Um, but I tried to lead a life that honors justice. And there's certainly plenty of work for us all to do. Um, You've met a lot of accomplished people over the years. Whom among them do you most admire and why? Hmm. A number of people. I mean, I, I like Sister Helen Prejean, who I, I got to know doing anti-death penalty work. Um, and I like her because of her humility that she's as ease. So I get to, Helen took me to death row in Texas. And there was something about being on death row in Texas with Sister Helen Prejean that um, it made me think a lot about stuff. She introduced me to the first person I ever met who was on death row who... And a couple months later, I stood right here in my kitchen, looked at the clock as I realized that his name Stanley Fowler, that he was being put to death in, in, in there. And I think I like about Helen is because she's pretty much the same as being on death row or sitting talking to the Pope or presidents. Rennie, it absolutely broke my heart when I read a headline that said, Rennie Cushing dying while legislating. And last year you were diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer and you're undergoing chemo right now. How are you these days? Well, I'm not dead yet. So that's always a positive thing. And I, you know, as I said, I, I, it's my first time dying. So I'm learning as I go along and dying while legislating. It's, uh, you know, I take it up as a, as a challenge. I, I was honored to be selected to be the minority leader i told my colleagues that about my condition and i'm not planning on leaving soon but i'm also realistically enough i believe in science i know what stage four prostate cancer is and i know that my time is limited um but i have a lot of living left to do even on my way out that's what i'm trying to do how do you feel these days a little tired I tend to be a little tired, a little knocked. I have, you know, obviously ongoing health challenges, but I'm, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm the luckiest kid I know. I'm blessed by a family who's just has all the love that I could possibly want. And my, you know, my fortune is my friends and my families. So, What do you think happens at the end of life? I don't know. I'll find out pretty soon. Do you think about questions like that? You know, I, I I think about that, but I'm also, you know, when I get there, I'll get there. I, I don't want to spend so much time thinking about what's going to happen, uh, you know, up ahead that I miss what I'm doing right now, because uh, otherwise I will kind of squander the, the opportunities that I have right now. And since by my diagnosis, you know, you take everything to be a gift. I sometimes took me a long while before I could talk about what the gift of my father's murder and realizing that, you know, despite everything and all the pain associated that you know, my work in opposing the death penalty was a gift that came from my father's murder because I got to talk about him. I got to keep his books alive and I got to speak in his name for opposition to capital, to oppose capital punishment. You know, I think right now I'm not the, you know, I'm, I'm one of like millions of people that are living with cancer every day. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't ignore it. I engage it, but I don't let it try to let, you know, to the extent I can, I'm trying not to let it control my life. 
I want to try and control my my life, despite my cancer. What do you want your wife, your three daughters, your other family members, your friends to know? Well, I mean, they know. You know, they're part of my journey. They're part of my journey. They're, you know, as as I'm making the transition, whatever it is, I, you know, we still have a lot of laughs together. I, you know, hope to leave behind a legacy of people who are. Uh, you know, care about each other and love each other and try to do right. Small ways every day, incrementally, just tiny little ways make the world a little bit better than how it is in the morning. When you come into the world in the morning, just try to do right. That was that saying, always try to do right. This will gratify some people and amaze the rest. What else do you want to do? Well, let's see. I have a long legislative agenda. I'm not sure I'm going to get to. I, you know, want to be in PFAS. I want to get away with forever chemicals. I want to stop criminalizing people with mental illness. I want to end the stupid war on cannabis. I want to, um, you know, transform our criminal justice system into one that helps bring about healing as well as you know, punishment. Um, that's just my day-to-day agenda. What's a really meaningful way for people to honor you and your life? I think a meaningful way to honor me and my life is to honor their own lives and to live a life that, you know, that honors justice. I try to, you know, I lead my own life and want people to lead theirs. I read that you enjoy poetry. Would you like to recite a poem for me? Well, how about the lamentation of the pensioner? Although I shelter from the rain beneath a broken tree, my chair was nearest to the fire in every company. The talk of love or politics airtime transfigured me. The lads are making pikes again for some conspiracy and devil rascals rage their fill at human tyranny. My contemplations are of time that has transfigured me. There's not a beauty turn her face upon a broken tree, and yet the women that I love are in my memory. I spit into the face of time that has transfigured me. Who wrote that poem? William Butler Yeats, The Limitation of the Pensioner. And what does it mean to you? Oh, it's one of those poems that I read when I was a, when I first started reading poetry, and it made me think about what I was going to be like when I grew up, when I got old. And um, you know, I'd had a I had a notion once upon a time that when I got old, I was going to retire to the north of Ireland, sit by a peat fire, and sip whiskey, and read poetry, and uh, write love letters to everyone in my life and time present. So, uh, over the years, that kind of uh, there was a poem that kind of stuck in my mind and offered up that promise and so you know i think when luckily i I didn't make it that far yet so uh but the the notion of contemplating changes uh but also always wanting to be like one of the lads who's making a pike for some conspiracy it's a kind of a combination of someone aspiration to be involved in social change and also having their heart touched uh, by people that they get to love. Thank you, Rennie. Be well. I will. Take care. This is my gift to you, this podcast. Thank you. I admire your values.
and you. Thank you very much. Would you be willing to help me attract new listeners? Rating and reviewing my show through Apple Podcasts helps people discover the podcast. Telling your friends to listen and sharing this episode on your social media channels also helps. Please and thank you. If you have a story you'd like to share, or if you know an interesting person I should contact, message me on social media or drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation.